If you listened to my video last week, you know that I said I was hoping this week to do one on what I think about the synaptic problem. So this is the promised video. It may be a little bit longer than usual. If you are interested in this topic and you clicked on this title, you probably already know what the synaptic problem is. But very briefly, it has to do with the question of how the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are interrelated and whether uh, Luke had access to Matthew, whether both of them were making some kind of use literarily of Mark, what especially are the literary relations between them. And this has to do with questions like independence. If they're all telling the same story, but they tell it in very similar words, then the idea can be that these aren't really three different independent witnesses to that story because they're just you know, copying from a common source or from an earlier one of the Gospels and so forth. Um, as you'll see as this video continues, that has implications for Gospel reliability because certain theories of the synoptic problem will tend to assume that if uh, one Gospel is using another Gospel as a source, then anything additional in the later Gospel is invented or any, any place where they appear to contradict, we should take it that the later gospel deliberately, the author deliberately changed the earlier gospel. And so there's a certain type of redaction criticism, very, very popular. In fact, sometimes it's practically identified as with redaction criticism, where once you determine your synaptic theory, then you take the later gospels always to be, um, when, when there's a similarity of wording, to just be adapting the earlier source rather than having any kind of independent evidence about what actually happened there. And so then that can come to uh, cast out on their accuracy or the reliability, especially if they have additional information about that story. Or um, also there's a tendency to assume that every wording change is highly deliberate. And so then people will sometimes try to read deep theological significance into any tiny uh, verbal difference. And so it can have all kinds of implications concerning gospel reliability. I'm motivated to do this video because there is, I am told, and I'm picking up on quite a bit of uh, misinformation out there on the internet about uh, Tim's and my views, or my views specifically, concerning the synaptic problem. Uh, You'll, you'll hear it said by skeptics and unfortunately sometimes Christians alike, while well, the McGrews believe in Matthew and priority. So that's the idea that Matthew wrote first and that um, Mark and Luke are based on Matthew. And that's just taken to be this, this horrible thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's a scholarly question, uh, but in fact, it's, it's not true that we're committed to Matthew and priority, nor would the sky fall if we were uh, committed to Matthew and priority, but in fact, we're not, that's not accurate. Um, you'll also hear, and this is even more serious, the incorrect claim that uh, Lydia thinks, or Tim and Lydia think, that all four of the Gospels are completely independent, that there's no literary relationship among any of them. And then it'll be like, well, then how do they account for all those verbal differences? Boy, how dumb they are. They don't know the, the literature. That's what you get with somebody who's not a real New Testament scholar tries to do New Testament scholarship. They just assume they're all completely independent. Um, and that's not true either. Um, or you'll sometimes see it said that 
those who advocate undesigned coincidences in the contemporary milieu right now are unaware of the synaptic problem or that uh, Lydia is unaware of the synaptic problem and that you wouldn't do undesigned coincidences, especially between Matthew and Mark and Luke or among them, if you really understood, if you were aware of that darn synaptic problem. And that's particularly inexcusable because my book, uh, Hidden in Plain View on Undesigned Coincidences, which is the main treatment of undesigned coincidences, the only book-length treatment of undesigned coincidences in like over a hundred years that came out in 2017 has been there and it's fully searchable and it shows that I am aware of the synaptic problem and have opinions on that. Now I've written even more about that in The Mirror or The Mask, which is also available on Kindle, fully searchable, well-indexed, where I say even more that shows an awareness of and a set of ideas about the synaptic problem. So if, if you've heard that the McGrews don't know about the synaptic problem or they just believe that all the Gospels are completely independent, you know, that that would be easily refutable if people would just look at my work. There was a passage, if you go back to the 2009 article that Tim and I co-wrote, and that passage was uh, drafted by Tim, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind my saying that. And uh, if, if I had been um, as into the New Testament stuff at that time, as I have since become, that's well over 10 years ago, of course, um, I might have said, hey, that's a little unclear. You know, we should rewrite it because he didn't actually mean to be endorsing Matthew and priority per se in that passage. It could be read that way, particularly since he quotes uh, a passage with apparent approval from a scholar named John Rist. And Rist is advocating that Matthew is completely independent of Mark, but the passage says more than that, and Tim was not meaning to endorse that particular sentence. And as you see, if you keep reading, the main point of that section is to advocate the ancientness and the apostolic origins of both Matthew and Mark without taking a a strong position that one of them was definitely first. It is, in fact, the patristic view of longstanding that Matthew wrote first, and I'll be talking about that in a minute. But that passage could have been read as a definite endorsement of Matthew and priority, and that, in fact, would be a misunderstanding. So I want to clear that up now. But there's lots of other information far more recent than that in whole books that I have written on uh, New Testament studies that would uh, correct that impression. Okay, so as not to keep you in suspense, I'm going to give very briefly um, the view that I lean towards weekly in the synaptic problem area. Now, because I think there is strong evidence of independence as well as literary dependence among the synaptic gospels, I do not regard this as a high stakes issue where you've just got to decide because if you go with Mark and priority then, and which is the, the majority view, then you're, you're sunk because Matthew must be making stuff up and adding it. That doesn't follow. So this is why I prefer to call it the synaptic puzzle. And the, the evidence is very messy. And I don't think any view should be held with dogmatism or used to browbeat or bully other people, as unfortunately, not only the so-called two-source hypothesis, but a particular version of the two-source hypothesis often is used to bully and browbeat people uh, because of the scholarly consensus. But 
I do have a, a, a weak opinion. I lean weakly toward a modified version of what is sometimes called the Zahn hypothesis, which has ties or resemblances in some ways to Matthean priority and in other ways to the standard Markan priority view. Uh, it's named for Theodore Zahn, a scholar. I am not endorsing anything else uh, he said, but I'm just, that's what it's called. Uh, and then I have my own spin on it. The um, Briefly, the Zahn hypothesis takes very seriously the uh, patristic idea that is said by many uh, church fathers that Matthew wrote first and that he wrote in the uh, Hebrew language. Some people try to say a Hebrew style, but it's really much more natural to take it to be the Hebrew language. But we don't have that. We don't have that document. We have a Greek Matthew um, that also was circulated by the church very early with great approval. And so the Zahn hypothesis takes it that there were, in fact, two versions of Matthew, um, one in one in Hebrew and one in Greek. And I would say that I think they were both written by Matthew. I think Matthew just, you know, decided that he needed to do a Greek version because that was the far more common language. Um, and then Mark comes in between them. And so you have um, Matthew coming first in one sense, but then you have the Greek Mark, which is very original. And then the later Hebrew, Ma or excuse me, the later Greek Matthew can actually be influenced literarily by the Greek Mark, Mark being the first Greek gospel. And of course, there would be no concern about plagiarism or anything of that kind. Um, and that Matthew in writing his Greek gospel could have been reading Mark, influenced by Mark, making use of it to some extent, because, you know, why write um, everything anew for yourself? And then that Luke over here had access to um, I would say, and this I'm not getting this from Zahn, this is my version, but had access to the earlier Hebrew Matthew and to Mark, but I would say probably not to the Greek Matthew. Now, my own spin on this is that I would tend to make the two versions of Matthew rather different from one another. It's not just like one is a straight translation of the other. My inclination, and this is conjectural, but is to place the Hebrew Matthew in something of the position that scholars place the hypothetical Q document. But in this case, it's not a wholly hypothetical document because we do have patristic attestation to a Hebrew or Aramaic, possibly, Matthew. Um, and so then it, we don't have any totally hypothetical uh, documents here. We have evidence for all of the documents we're talking about. But we don't know exactly what was contained in it because we don't have it. Um, so to that extent, it's somewhat hypothetical. But I tend to think it was shorter. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it did not contain the birth narratives. And that would account for some of the appearances in Luke. And you can go back to my virgin birth series to see that it just doesn't look like Luke had access to Matthew's birth narratives. I also think it probably didn't give all the same settings. I think it may have just quoted uh, things that Jesus said and discourses that he gave, but without giving settings and without like firmly placing, okay, these were all said at one time and so forth in the way that the Greek Matthew does so that Luke may have considered himself free to relate them at different points, narrating, as I've often said, achronologically, because perhaps settings were not given in the Hebrew uh, Matthew, that earlier document, again, standing somewhat in the place of Q to which he had access. 
So then this ends up having a lot of resemblance to the two-source hypothesis, with the Hebrew Matthew standing in the place of Q and then Mark, and these two both being used by uh, Matthew and Luke in writing their Gospels. So that's that overview of, you know, what does Lydia think right now? And as I say, I'm just leaning weakly so I could change my mind, but about the synoptic problem, or as I would prefer to call it, the synoptic puzzle. I call it that because it doesn't call anything into question, and you don't have to adopt all of these heavy redactive theories in the sense that the this is just Matthew using Mark and then adding his own stuff non-factually to the stories, or the same with Luke. You don't have to accept that. And that's what I'm going to go into now, which I actually consider to be uh, the more important issue. So here's a book that I really think everybody interested in this should read, even though I don't entirely agree with it. It's called Redating Matthew, Mark, and Luke, A Fresh Assault on the Synoptic Problem by the late scholar John Wenham. Now, Wenham does advocate straightforward Matthewan priority with Luke just using Matthew, which is substantially identical to the Matthew that we have, whether in Hebrew or in Greek, but the point is it's, you know, it's our Matthew. Um, and, and Mark as well. So uh, he does advocate Matthew priority, but there is so much good sense in this book. You don't have to agree with him about how he does that in order to get a lot of good sense out of it. There's something that he says on page 10 that I just strongly agree with. It seems then that solely literary theories reach an impasse and that a simple oral theory is not adequate, but there is a third possibility. There may be a large measure of independence as well as an important measure of interdependence. It is along these lines that a new attempt may be made to solve the synoptic problem. That is so important. And Wenham is the only scholar I can think of that I, I know of that's actually said that that explicitly. There is a huge problem concerning the synoptic problem in New Testament studies today. And that huge problem is a, a limitation of imagination and a kind of a narrow vision. New Testament scholars, when they say the two-source hypothesis, they don't just mean this. Matthew is dependent on Mark and Luke is dependent on Mark somewhat literarily. And then there's also this document a cue that Matthew and Luke are using that accounts for the stuff that's in the two of them, but not in Mark. And uh, they're dependent on that as a common source, literally. End of subject. Okay. And that's it. And leaving unstated anything else. No, they're taking a much heavier view, which is Matthew used Mark. And if there's a story that is verbally similar, that looks like it's, you know, there's dependence, literary dependence on Mark in Matthew or in Luke. And there's something different about it, like some added fact that's in there or something that looks like a discrepancy or uh, a difference of wording. A, this, was, this change was made extremely deliberately, even if it's the most trivial wording difference. It couldn't just be that he was just telling in his own words. No, no, no. He must have been, oh, Mark has this exact word, but I'll put this exact word. All right, so A, very deliberate. And B, if there's any difference of fact, it was a change made by uh, Matthew or Luke without factual basis deliberately. Okay. So if 
Uh, it couldn't be that they had different, for example, witness testimonies or memories that worded things slightly differently. No, it's got to be them using Mark and just changing it just out of their own heads. Okay, and this leads to a lot of issues. Okay, so if we decide that a certain parable was in Q and that um, Matthew and Luke give different versions of it, even though they're set in completely different settings, then the idea is that one or the other of them has ripped it out of that context and, and you know, told it in a, in a different context where Jesus didn't tell it. Or um, if there is uh, a little bit of dialogue in Matthew, and uh, it's not in Mark. Well, Matthew must have made up that dialogue, for example. Okay, that doesn't follow from a benign, minimal version of the two-source hypothesis. And so, of course, it doesn't follow from the sort of Zahn-like structure that I'm giving, which is in many ways similar to the two-source hypothesis. Either Matthew or Luke could use Mark or Matthew could use his own earlier version, or Luke could use that Hebrew Matthew for a story and also have other information to add. You do not have to have either complete literary dependence and then anything else there must be added non-factually, or complete independence, like they never read each other, they were shut up in separate rooms, and, and it's just, wow, what a coincidence that the wording is so similar. How stupid you people must be, and how uneducated to think that there's any sort of factual independence here. Don't you see that wording similarity? Yeah, I see it. I see the wording similarity. I even am very open to a literary explanation for much of that wording similarity. But that doesn't mean that these other people could and authors could not have had additional factual information which they just inserted into the story based in Matthew's case sometimes on his own memories or based on talking to other witnesses who were there we've got to get a better toolbox we've got to get a richer toolbox so let me give you a couple of examples and what's interesting is that these will be confirmed now I'm not going to give again those of you who know my undesigned coincidences, you've all heard this one over and over again, about to his servants, <clears throat> where Herod is speaking to his servants, and that phrase, to his servants, is only found in Matthew. Matthew's account there looks a lot like Mark's account. He's about to launch into the account of the beheading of John the Baptist and leads into it with Matthew musing on who Jesus might be when he hears about him and thinking he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And it sounds a lot like Mark in Matthew. But only Matthew says that he was speaking to his servants. And then those of you who know, we can find out that um, from Luke, from a completely unrelated passage about Husa, the uh, household manager of Herod and his wife, Joanna, who were followers, apparently Joanna definitely says was a follower of Jesus. And that's how Matthew could have learned what Herod was saying to his servants. So he could have talked to Joanna and added that to his servants, which Mark didn't know about, okay? That, that Herod said it and he said it to his servants. This must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. But from a hidebound two-source hypothesis perspective, if Matthew is using Mark, then he must be adding that to his servants just by guessing whom he might have been talking to or something like that because he can't have any extra sources of information because he got the story from Mark, so he's just redacting it. Okay, or um, so at the tomb, for example, 
Um, Mark talks about how the angel said to the women that he's going before you into Galilee. In Luke, the angel says to the women, remember that he told you when he was in Galilee that he would die and rise again. And the redactive hypothesis is, okay, you know, Luke is using Mark, so uh, he must just be changing the Galilee reference to he's going before you into Galilee to he told you while he was in Galilee. So in other words, Luke's making that up. And yet we actually have confirmation of that because all the synaptics talk about these women and that these women were with Jesus in Galilee. And I've, I've spelled out the details of that later, but it's, it dovetails beautifully with other passages about these women who came with him from Galilee. So that the angel may very well have, and I think did say, also, remember he told you while he was in Galilee. So we don't have to look at it as just Luke modifying Mark. But again, that, that hidebound, narrow, uh, you know, either it's totally dependent or it's totally independent set of views would require us to think that Luke is just modifying Mark. An another one uh, I'll give just very briefly. There is a parable, and it's in it's in all three. I believe it's in what's called the triple tradition of the synaptic gospels about uh, the wicked tenants who kept murdering the the landowner's servants and not giving him his rent uh, of the fruits of the land, and then finally they murder his son and so forth. Uh, and and there's some differences of wording in all three of them, but um, specifically. There's a little bit of dialogue, a little, tiny little, hardly even constant dialogue back and forth where Jesus says, you know, what will he do? You know, and they say he will destroy those wicked servants and so forth. And um, Dr. Lacona has suggested that Matthew invented that dialogue and that that was, you know, permitted by the standards of the time, just modifying Mark. But what we, what we find is that there's this unique bit in Matthew that Jesus is very explicit. He says that the kingdom will be taken from you. He like interprets the parable for them. It will be taken from you and given to, to those who are bringing forth fruit. And then over in Luke, separately, we, we don't have an account of Jesus being that explicit. He just doesn't mention that. But he mentions that when um, when the people say, you know, he's going to take, um, or when Jesus says he's going to take it away from that wicked tenant, those wicked tenants and destroy the wicked tenants, the people say, oh, may it never be. And, and like Jesus in Luke is still talking in terms of the parable. He's not interpreted it yet. And it would look really weird for them to see themselves automatically, even if in their minds they thought, oh yeah, he's casting us in the role of the bad guys. Still, you don't usually jump in and go, Oh, that's terrible. Those poor bad guys. He killed He killed them. He's going to kill them, you know. And so the may it never be is a little odd at that place in Luke. But if you put the explicitness of Jesus in Matthew together with the may it never be in Luke, then they fit together. That because Jesus explicitly said the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to those who bring forth fruit, then the people say may it never be, Okay. But if you think they're both just using Mark and they don't have any independent sources of information because of similarity of wording, then you're going to have to think that this is just made up and that it's just a coincidence that they fit so well together. Now, I could give more examples, but that will do because this uh, video is getting long enough already. The point I'm making here is the synaptic problem is no problem. 
Okay, the synaptic problem is no problem. That doesn't mean we have a, an easy solution or that even my preferred solution is a knockdown. That's not the point. It's no problem for gospel reliability. Once we set aside that narrow-minded version of it and we say, but, but they could be using these earlier sources, even for a given story, but also adding in tidbits that they have from independent sources. And I think it's because scholars literally do not conceive of that theory, except except Wenham does, okay, that they tend to make fun of anybody who suggests any degree of independence, then, then tend to straw man that person and, and imply that that person is saying it's they're entirely independent and then that person has no way of accounting for verbal similarities. Um, that's because they can't think in terms of this third option of partial dependence and partial independence. Another great contribution of common sense that Wenham makes is that he talks about the physical difficulties of writing at the time and looking things up and marking. I mean, they didn't have cut and paste, okay? And they didn't even have large writing tables. So these are big scrolls. So the picture of, you know, the scroll of Mark open and Matthew and Luke, you know, copying back and forth from his scroll to their scroll verbatim. And then if it departs from a verbatim copying, it's got to be like, okay, I'm going to change that that word. And then we'll try to find some, you know, theological reason for them to change that one word. It's completely artificial and anachronistic. They, they would have, as Wenham argues, they would have taken notes. They would have read Mark's scroll. Maybe they even read it many times. Maybe it was very uh, strongly in their mind, very fresh in their mind. And Wenham also leans heavily on oral tradition more so than I do. But the point is that this wording was available to them. But then you, you roll up that scroll before you go to start writing on your own scroll because you just, you only have so much room. You know, you're not like laying out, it's like laying out big rolls of, you know, wallpaper or something on the floor and crawling around on the floor. They're not doing it that way. So that's a really important blow, I think, to these either heavy, heavy redaction critical theories where every word is chosen very deliberately as a departure or a copying of the source uh, and um, what's called tendons critic, which is something Robert Gundry does a huge amount of, where there's always a theological rationale or we try to puzzle our minds for theological rationale. So that's another very important thing to add. Once you have this in place, I think you can be freed from actually worrying about the synaptic problem because it's not as though you have to commit yourself to, say, Matthew priority in order for Matthew to have independent evidence. Okay, it really doesn't matter. Even if Matthew is somewhat dependent upon Mark, he can still have independent evidence. So the synaptic problem is no problem for gospel reliability. I hope that has clarified some things about what I think about the synaptic problem. And I hope you'll come back next week for more great content. Please be sure to like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.